Welcome to the December 3rd episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is Ezekiel 45 and 46 and 1 John 2, but we'll focus only on the New Testament in this podcast. I hope you're ready. Let's get started. All right, so let's look at 1 John 2, and we've got 29 verses in this chapter, significantly larger than chapter 1, so uh, we need to just jump right in and and uh, make wise use of our time. So let's look at verse 1. It says, my little children. Okay, so he is not... If, if I was to say, boy, you're acting like a child, or if you were to say that, that's not a positive thing. That's not a complimentary statement. But that's not how John is using the word children here. He's using the children in an affectionate way. He's talking about people as in those that he is spiritually responsible for. You know, that he's kind of taken the the fatherly figure of. He's watching over them. And so that's why he calls them my little children. It's not a slam on them. It's actually a term of endearment. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. Okay, so he just got through saying in chapter one that if we say we have no sin, we make God a liar. And so we we do sin. We do struggle with sin. But in verse one, he, he's making it, he's making it clear that uh, simply because we have to admit that we sin and therefore verse nine, first John one nine, we need to go before the father to ask forgiveness and cleansing. That doesn't mean that we can keep on sinning you know, without uh, trying to stop. Verse two, chapter two, verse one says, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. Now, once again, remember that um, in the original language, in the Greek, and uh, you know, this is a topic we could kind of dive into, but we don't have time to do it. But in the original language, um, I mean, it, it, the Koine Greek, the Greek of the New Testament, the Greek that the writers of the New Testament used when they penned their letters and penned their gospels. Koine Greek is is highly inflected, and what that means is is that each word can tell a story because it's got prefixes and suffixes, and, and there's all sorts of things that go into each word. Uh, as far as, you know, I mean, it, if, if it's past tense, is it past tense punctiliar? Is it past tense ongoing? Is it past tense completed? I mean, present tense, if you, I mean, just all sorts of things. And so, unfortunately, when the translators are taking that those words in the original language that John wrote in 1 John, if they were to um, accurately... Uh, in depth, go into a translation and, and create a translation that brought out all of the nuance of the words that were being used, and you know all of the the moods of those words, the tenses of those words, uh, the, all sorts of things. Then our Bibles would be five, six, seven, eight times larger than they are. <laughs> uh, but one of the things, one of the just stated this simplistic uh, simply. One of the things in 1 John is most of these verbs are written in the present tense, which means it's ongoing. It's unfortunate that many of our translations 
don't treat it like an ongoing thing. In verse 1 again, I'm writing these to these things to you so that you may not sin. Well, that sounds like he's saying, I'm writing 1 John so that you won't sin at all. But that's not what John was saying. He's writing it in the present tense, which, which really would be accurately translated. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not keep on sinning, so that you won't keep doing the same things. And so he's not contradicting what he said just a few verses earlier in the previous chapter, where if we say we have no sin, we make him a liar. And therefore he's saying, well, I'm writing this so so that you don't sin. What he's saying is, I'm writing this to you so that you won't keep doing those things that are disobedient to God. It's in the present tense. It means it's ongoing action. And so that's what he's saying. Sinners are going to... Christians are going to continue to sin, but we ought to be sinning less. And if there are areas in our life that are a struggle for us, then we need to be relying upon God's Word to instruct us and God's Holy Spirit to empower us to break the chains of that sin so that we don't keep on doing it. That's what he's saying. I'm writing you these things so that you may not keep on doing the same things, keep on sinning. But... Verse 1 isn't finished. But if anyone does sin, and of course we're going to sin, if anyone does sin, then uh, he said we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So the word for advocate here in verse 1 is the same Greek word, parakaleo. It's the same Greek word that is often translated comforter, in regard to the Holy Spirit, it's the same word. I mean, our translators didn't translate it comforter here. They translated it advocate. Because that word, that Greek word, parakaleo, paraclete, that's referring to the Old Te- to the Holy Spirit in other passages, uh, has a lot of different meanings to it. But I think advocate is a very good translation here. But if anyone does sin, and we are going to sin, we have an advocate. That means we have a defense attorney. Jesus is our defense attorney there at the side of the Father. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. And so the, the word atoning sacrifice, that's an interesting word in the original language. It's the Greek word hilasmas, and that word was used by pagans to refer to how it is that the pagan gods could be appeased because the pagan gods would be angered. And so worshipers, pagan worshipers, would offer up a sacrifice to appease the gods and to to get them to, to be less angry, to kind of appease their anger. That's the same word used here. A lot of people don't like to think that the one true God gets angry at sin, but he does. He does. But this verse says he himself is the, Jesus is the, he lost my He is the atoning sacrifice. He is the, some translations say, propitiation for our sins. That means that God is angry at sin, but Jesus appeased God so that God is no longer angry at us. Jesus was the sacrifice that appeased God's wrath and satisfied his expectation and demand for holiness. Oh my goodness, it's seven minutes and we've only gotten through the first two verses. Uh, Let's really pick up the pace. Verse three, this is how we know that we know him if we keep his commands. He said, this is how we know that we are saved and we are enjoying relationship with him. This is how we know that we're keeping his commands. 
right? Somebody that says, yeah, I'm saved, but they are not reading their Bible, they're not obeying Scripture, they're not putting into practice the things that God has commanded in His Word, and they have no desire to do so, has no basis upon which to say that they are saved. Now, whether or not true saving faith has happened in their heart, that's between them and the Lord, and really, only the Lord knows for certain. But do you want to grow in your assurance of knowing that you are saved? Well, obey His Word. This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. If we obey his word, read the Bible, and put it into practice, we believe it, we we live it, that doesn't make us saved, and it certainly doesn't keep us saved. But if this is the desire of our heart and we're doing this, then this demonstrates that we almost certainly are saved. Verse 4, the one who says, I've come to know him, and yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's stating it, the op, stating the same thing, only negatively. He said, anybody who says, oh yeah, I know the Lord, I've got a relationship with him, I'm saved, but he doesn't obey his commands, John said he's a liar. He's a liar. He does not know the Lord. If he's not obeying the Lord's commands, if he's not getting into scripture and not putting it into practice, then he is not in relationship with the Lord. Verse 5. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. And so he said, you know what, how you come into a relationship where you were able to experience God's love for you? It's obedience. He said it's not just that obedience is a telltale sign of the fact that we belong to the Lord, But it's also a way in which we can come into a fuller expression of his love. We can experience his love for us because God's not disciplining us. He's blessing us with greater degrees of his presence. Verse 7, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard. And so what he's going to be talking about now is love for others, particularly love for fellow believers. This is what he's talking about. He said, I'm not writing a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning, from the beginning of the gospel, from the beginning of Jesus' ministry as he spoke of love. He said, this is what I'm talking about, love. Verse 8, yet I'm writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And so he said that I'm writing a new command in that it's new, it's fresh, Uh, It's a reminder to us that this is how God has called us to relate to each other through Jesus. Jesus told us this is how we are to relate to each other. We are to love. We're going to see that in just a second. But he said that, uh, uh, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Uh, Jesus has shown up. Jesus has not only commanded us to love, but Jesus demonstrated it. The greatest act of love was when he died on the cross for us expressing his love for us. And uh, so he said, this is how we're to live. Verse 9, the one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. So now he's talking about somebody else. He's now saying, okay, if you are hating, now remember again, this is present tense. This is ongoing action. This isn't just a moment in time. This is ongoing action. Uh, This is one of those things where, you know, it says the one who, uh, the one who, the one who says he is in the light, so he says, yeah, I'm, I'm saved and I'm, I've got a good relationship with the Lord, but is, present tense, is hating his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. Um, 
most certainly Christians can really get on each other's nerves. And there can be times whenever harsh words are said, things are done, injustice happens, and Christians get upset at each other, maybe even hate. They wouldn't use the word. They wouldn't even say, oh, I don't hate them. I just don't love them. Well, in the Bible, you either love or you hate. It's one or the other. Um, and uh, so what he is saying is, is he's not saying that if we have those moment encounters or those brief times of really disdain for others, for other believers. He's not talking about that. He's talking about ongoing, someone who refuses to make things right, someone who is content to remain angry and and uh, you know, with an attitude of hatred for someone else, you know, if they were, if something bad was to happen, there would be a sense of of happiness in the heart of the one who's holding on to that hatred. John said, "Boy, you know, you're in the dark if you've got that kind of heart. If you've got that kind of heart, if you can hold on to hatred for a fellow brother or sister, then you're in the dark." Now, is he saying that they are not saved, or is he simply saying that they are acting like they're not saved? I don't know. Um, you know, uh, we don't work to get saved. We don't work to stay saved. But as we chase after holiness and as we get rid of sin and as we love the brotherhood and as we um, repent of any hatred or any animosity or anything like that, well, that just demonstrates to us that, yes, our heart is right. God's Holy Spirit is working within us and we are truly His. But how far can you go the other way and have a disdain for someone else and still be someone who is saved? I don't know. You can't lose your salvation, but it may demonstrate at some point that you or I, you know, whoever was never truly saved if they can hold on to animosity. And so uh, you can't lose your salvation, you don't work to get saved, but how we behave, this is John's message, how we behave demonstrates what is truly in our heart. Okay, so let's look at verse 10, the one who loves his brother or sister. Okay, so now he states it positively. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. So he said, you know what? If you love your brothers and sisters, and the implication is, of course you love them if they're easy to love. But when we love each other in spite of sometimes the offenses that are made, the harsh words that are said, the things that are done that are not right, that are inappropriate, and yet we choose to forgive and love, yeah, that demonstrates the heart of someone that belongs to the Lord Jesus. Verse 11, but the one who hates his brother or sister, it goes back to the negative, the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Again, is he saying this person isn't saved if they can live in perpetual hatred of a fellow believer, of, of someone who is a believer? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, you know, is he is he just saying that they are acting like they are unsaved and maybe that they are unsaved? I think that's probably a little bit more accurate um, to say it that way. Okay, so let's look at verses 12 through 14. Here he talks about children and fathers and young men. Now, it seems to me that what's going on here is children refers to those who are young in their faith, 
young men tends to seems to me to be speaking of those who are you know maybe halfway to 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 spiritual maturity and then fathers seems to be speaking of those who are in you know are getting closer and closer to spiritual maturity you know there's wisdom to them and spiritual maturity so let's just look at this verse 12 I'm writing to you little children since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. So he said, okay, children, you, those of you who are young uh, and you, those of you are, who are new in your faith, um, you've been saved and your sins have been forgiven. Oh, that's good. <laughs> but that's just the starting point. That's why they're children. Verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers. Okay, so these are the ones who have really matured in their faith. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. And so he said, those who are really mature, they've gone on beyond just knowing that their sins have been forgiven. They know the Father. He says, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning, you have a relationship with the Lord. You're not just saved. You've grown in your relationship with the Lord. And Jesus will say, I knew you. He's not going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. He's going to say, I knew you. I know you. Why? Because they were growing in a relationship with him. They're fathers. They're mature in their faith. The end of verse 13, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. And so those that are kind of halfway there are growing in their faith, and they are defeating uh, sin and Satan. How are they able to defeat Satan? They are learning spiritual principles. The Bible says, uh, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so that's how Satan is defeated. It's not us. It is not us. It is as we submit to the Father and we learn from the Gospels, it is as we rely upon the name and the power of the person of Jesus Christ that we have that we have imputed authority, but it is not our authority. It is God's authority. It's Jesus' authority. But those who are progressing in their faith, the young men, uh, they've come to understand spiritual principles that enable them to be effective in their spiritual walk, to defeat and conquer the evil one. Verse 14, I have written to you children, so now he goes back to the kids, because you have come to know the Father. Okay, so they have come into a relationship with the Father. They come to know the Father, but that's just the beginning of it. And so those who are new in their faith should recognize that you're not just forgiven of your sins, but you have been invited into a relationship with the Father, but never to be satisfied with it, always wanting more. I've written to you fathers, middle of verse 14, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. So he just goes back to what he said about them while ago. That's the climax of the Christian life is relationship. You've come to know the one from the beginning. It's Christianity is so much more than just being forgiven of sins. It's a relationship with the God of all creation. You've come to know the one who is from the beginning. And then he says at the end of verse 14, I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. So once again, we realize those who are making progress in their faith are learning spiritual principles, enabling them to be spiritually victorious. So the young in their faith, forgiven of their sins, invited into a relationship with God. Those that are halfway there, 
um, ha- learn spiritual principles and apply those spiritual principles to be spiritually victorious. And those that are mature in their faith, it's all about relationship. They have come to know experientially the God of all creation. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Oh, so if we love the world, then God's love is not in us. That seems to me he is saying, if if you have an ongoing love relationship with the world and what the world has to offer, if, if that's your primary thing, that's it, then you don't have a love for God in you. You are not saved. Now, as a Christian, we would say there are things in the world that can be enjoyed because God created the world and God created all things for our enjoyment. But the Christian would say, I ultimately love God. I desire to obey the greatest commandment, to love the Lord my God with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my mind and all of my strength. And as we are continuing to pursue that relationship with God, and growing in that, and uh, he is first, and he's sitting on the throne of our heart, then there are other things in the world that we can enjoy. Uh, food, you know, family. Uh, I mean, there's in entertainment within uh, certain parameters, not too much of it, but, uh, you know, in balance, there's all sorts of things. But whenever he's talking about the world, he's referring to something a little bit more sinister, He's talking about the world as in the sinful world system. Anybody that loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. If we find delight in the things, the sinful things the world has to offer, and we are having that ongoing delight in it, then we're not saved. That's what he's saying. But listen to what he talks about as far as what is in the world. Verse 16, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, And the pride in one's possessions or the pride in one's life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so he said there are three things that are in the world, and I I believe these are the three primary categories of sin. Lust of the flesh. That means my body wants it. You know, it's kind of animalistic. I want it, and therefore I've got to have it. You know, it's, it's animalistic. I mean, if an animal, if a dog wants something desperately, the only thing that'll keep him from uh, eating it, you know, or, or whatever, is, uh, is the threat of pain. The threat of pain. Because an animal, when it has a desire, has to meet that desire. Lust of the flesh is my body wants it. My body wants it. The next is lust of the eyes. So what is that? Uh, when you think when you're that lust of the eyes, when the eyes are looking and lusting, what's really going on? It's really the mind, right? The mind wants it. My mind wants it. And so my body wants it. My mind wants it. And these are talking about sinful things, or maybe the things themselves are not sinful, but we have turned them into sin because we are lusting after them and they've taken priority in our hearts. Lust of the flesh, my body wants it. Lust of the eyes, my mind wants it. The pride in one's possessions, my ego wants it. It, It's pride, right? All of these things are in the world. My body wants it, my mind wants it, my ego wants it. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3 and you look at the sin of Eve, and when you read that verse, and I forget which verse it is, but it's in Genesis 3 at the very beginning, it talks about how it is that Eve looked at the fruit after Satan deceived her, 
And it said that she looked at it, it was good for food, that's the lust of the flesh, and it was delight, it was pleasant to the eyes, that was the lust of the eyes. And then it, uh, it held out the hope of making one wise, that was the pride of life, right? And so the three things that John mentions here are the same three things that Eve fell to in Genesis 3. All three of them are there. But if you go to Matthew chapter 4 and you look at the three temptations of Christ, you realize that all three of those were these three areas as well. What was the first thing? Satan said, you know, hey, you're hungry. Turn these stones into bread. That would have been the lust of the flesh. My body wants it. Jesus was starving. He hadn't eaten for 40 days, the lust of the flesh, and he uh, defeated it. Another one of the temptations was Satan took him to a place, took him actually to a pinnacle of the temple and had him look down and said, you know, go on and draw, jump off. The, uh, the angels will protect you. The angels will catch you, you know, lest you dash your foot against the stone. What was that? That was the pride of one's life. That was presuming upon God. Jesus defeated that one, the pride of life. And then Satan took him to a place where he was able, Jesus was able to see all of the kingdoms of the world and said, bow down to me and you will be able to have all of these. Jesus was able to look at all of the kingdoms and he could have had them. What was that? The pride, uh, the lust of the eyes. He was looking at that and he could have had the lust of the eyes, but he defeated that too. And so I want you to know that as we see the three categories of sin in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, those were the three things that Eve fell to in Genesis 3. Those are the three things that Jesus defeated in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus came as the second Adam to get back what the first Adam lost. And we would say, well, Eve was the one. Adam was the one in spiritual authority. God held him responsible. He did not hold Eve responsible. He held Adam responsible. And so Adam messed it up. Uh, his wife messed it up, but he was one with her, so he was guilty of her sin, and Jesus came to remedy that and to defeat it. And so all three of these sins are dealt with as we trust in Christ. They're gone. We're, we're not guilty of these anymore, and therefore we should live like who we are. Verse 17, and the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Basically, he says, why would you want to go after something that's passing away? Why would you want to go after something that is um, going to be defeated? Why don't you follow Jesus? Why don't, instead of going after the world and its lust, why not follow after Jesus? Uh, because the one who does the will of God remains forever. You will have eternal life. It's not doing these things that gives you eternal life, but if you are genuinely saved and you have eternal life, you will act like this. You will obey the Lord, and you will not go after the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life as a pattern of life. Verse 18, children, it's the last hour. And so John was saying, hey, we're in the last days. Hey, we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. It's only God's patience, Peter tells us, uh, that is keeping God from sending Jesus uh, because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so God continues to wait and wait. But John was right when he said, it's the last hour. We're in the last days. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, and so Antichrist, this is not an Antichrist. This is the Antichrist. This is the one that's spoken of in the book of Revelation. And John's going to write, him about, write about him in the book of Revelation. He said, you've heard that Antichrist is coming. He's not here yet, but he's coming. 
even now many antichrists have come. So John said there's one antichrist in the book of Revelation that is going to come, but he said even now and even in the first century, there are many antichrists. There are many of those that set themselves up in the place of Jesus and want people to follow them rather than following Jesus. By this, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it may be made clear that none of them belongs to us. So what's he talking about here? Well, the way that I've understood this verse previously is that uh, you know when people abandon the faith, when people not just step out of church but step away from the faith, well, that just demonstrates that it, they didn't belong to us, that they weren't saved, right? If, if you can abandon Jesus and abandon the faith long term, then something's desperately wrong and the Holy Spirit won't let you stay in that situation. But as I've studied that verse here recently, I wonder if another possibility may be that John is saying they went out from us, as in there were those that were with the apostles, but they went out from the apostles because they had some sort of disagreement, theologically maybe, with the apostles, and so now they have gone out to uh, cause trouble with the people that John is writing to. And he's saying, they went out from us, the apostles, because they were not of us. We didn't send them, and they don't agree with us, and we don't agree with them, so don't you listen to them. I think that's what he's, that may be what he's talking about, um, that, uh, that there were people that went out from the presence of the apostles in disagreement with them, and were going out and spreading all sorts of untruth uh, about um, the Lord, about uh, the way of holiness, and all sorts of other things. And John is basically saying, they went out from us, don't listen to them. Verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. Okay, the Holy One is who? God, Jesus. And this is another thing about John. Uh, sometimes you look at a designation or a pronoun, and you think, okay, is he talking about Jesus, or is he talking about God the Father? You know, I think in John's mind, he, he could have said, it doesn't matter, either one, they're both the same. You know, two persons, one God, really three persons that, you know, of course, the Trinity, but, uh, but in regard to Jesus and God the Father, I think sometimes he was, I don't want to use the word careless or reckless, but as he wrote these pronouns down, he didn't designate whether he was talking about God the Son or God the Father because I think in his mind it didn't matter because they are one. And so when he says the anointing from the Holy One, is he talking about Holy One? Is that Jesus or is that the Father? John would probably say yes. <laughs> so what is the anointing? I think that's the Holy Spirit. But you have an anointing. You have the Holy Spirit from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I've not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one denies the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and he who confesses the Son has the Father as well. And so what I believe he was saying is, is that they, because he knows he's writing to believers, and I think he is presuming or assuming that he's not just writing to believers, but mature believers, 
he's basically saying, you know, you don't really need us to write this because you've got the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to reveal these truths to you. And you're going to know who Jesus is. And you're not going to know who the Father is. And the Holy Spirit's going to guide you to obey the scriptures. And so John basically said, you really don't need us to write this. We're just kind of reminding you of some things that God's Holy Spirit, the anointing in you, is going to do in you. And uh, so he was talking about how certainly someone who has the Holy Spirit is not going to deny uh, Jesus. Verse 24, what you have heard from the beginning is to remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. And so what we heard, what they heard from the beginning is the message of the gospel, the message about Jesus. He said, if you remain in that, then you know you are saved. You will remain in the Son and in the Father. He's not saying that if you don't remain in it, then you will be unsaved. No, he's not saying that they can lose their salvation. What he is saying is someone who is truly saved will remain in him. They will not reject him long term. Maybe for a short period of time, whatever short is, whether it's days, weeks, maybe months, I don't know. I'm not God. I don't know what that is. But for a short period of time, someone can step away from the Lord. How do I know that? Well, Peter did it. Peter went so far as to deny him three times. And uh, he was still a follower of Jesus. He just needed to get pulled back in by Jesus. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And uh, But what we see here is that someone who is genuinely saved is not going to long-term uh, go away from the Father, go away from the Son. Verse 26, I've written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. So I think these are the Antichrist, those who have gone out from the apostles, maybe these are them, and uh, are trying to deceive these people, speak untruth. I've written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, just as it is taught you, remain in him. Once again, I think the anointing is talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who is in them, and he will guide them into all truth. John said, you really don't need me telling you this stuff, but I'm going to write it anyway verse 28 and 29, and we're done. So now, little children, remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming, right? So pursue holiness so that when Jesus comes back, you won't be ashamed and embarrassed at your spiritual condition. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, if you know that he is righteous, you know this as well. What? What do we know? Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So if we know that Jesus, if we know that the Father is righteous, then if we have truly been born again, then we will be chasing after righteousness as well. Remember, John has written this letter so that we can know that we are saved. He's writing this letter. He's telling us thing after thing after thing that if you were saved, this is true of you. If you were saved, this is generally true of you. This will be primarily, mostly true of you. There's going to be times when we falter and stumble. We stumble into sin. But long term, if we are genuinely saved, 
God's going to be making us, conforming us into the image of Jesus. That doesn't save us. It just demonstrates that we truly are saved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we thank you. We thank you so much that um, that you have done all of this work, Lord. All of our all our job. The only thing we have to do is is understand the gospel. And at the point of salvation, all we have to do is rest our faith in you. Just trust in what you said, and what you did, and in who you are. We just trust in you that when you died on the cross that whoever believes in you will be forgiven, will be saved, and we just rest in that. And, and so that's not a work of us. We just, we just rest on you. And then whenever we are saved, then we rest on the Holy Spirit, but we do get active, but even then, nothing that we do is even possible if the Holy Spirit was not enabling us to do those things. And so even then, it could be argued that we really aren't responsible for any of the good that's coming from us at that point. We, we realize that it is you, Father, who are at work in us both to will and to do according to your good pleasure. But Lord, there is our part. We are supposed to focus on your word and rely upon your spirit and depend upon your spirit to open up the word and enable us to comply with the word. Help us to make good in this, Lord. Help us not just to read your word just so that we have more information, but so that we can put it into practice and so that we can be used by you to increase your kingdom, to make disciples. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you next time.